Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed the grim state of America's for-profit immigration system, learned about water conservation and drought, and chewed over the future of the post office. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, the Biden Files, and more. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for Independence Day 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke to Joe Mino, author of Between Everything and Nothing, a true story of immigration into America. Mino discussed the horrific story of how two Ghanaian immigrants fled the USA to Canada, suffering ruinous injuries en route. Mino also reveals the emergence of a uniquely American for-profit detention system that dehumanizes refugees. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. One of the reasons it was held up in the international press, it got great play, um, of course, in the Canadian papers and and in the uh, United Kingdom media, was because the men suffered serious injuries and it was viewed as kind of a referendum on Trump's immigration policies at the time, which I think all listeners um, remember were... uh, unusually restrictive, and in some cases, uh, I think even uh, a neutral observer would say needlessly cruel, uh, right. regardless. What's interesting, what's interesting is, though, so this was 2016, so it was actually before Trump took office, and this is where I got hooked, and this is where I started, you know, you get this moment as like a journalist or even as a reader or as a person where someone's telling you a story, and your preconceptions about something starts to fall away. So this was actually a month or two months really before um, Trump took office. And, you know, as a Chicagoan and a a lifelong progressive, you know, I was such a huge supporter, such a huge fan of President Obama, uh, his creation of DACA, you know, Obamacare. But in this way, um, and this is so easily overlooked, they were actually in paid uh, detention facilities. So these um, detention facilities, which are privately run corporations under the Obama administration. And they actually fled the US after both losing their asylum cases under the Obama administration. And I hate even uttering this out loud, more so than any other American president, President Obama deported um, more individuals yeah, than million. any other president. Yeah. And so they actually fled after the election in November of uh, 2016. So it was actually before any of those really draconian immigration policies um, were put in place by Trump. It was really the fear that, you know, um, once he took office, they would be immediately deported back to Ghana and their lives would be once again placed in danger. And so that's what's really compelling, that the story that, uh, that of these two men and the challenges that they faced through um, our unjust immigration policy, it's not the story of Donald Trump, unfortunately. It's the story of the US really since 9-11 and the failure of both um, Democrats and Republicans to resolve this question of, of Im- immigration. So as much as I would love to be like, oh, it was Trump and his long shadow and all of these crazy um, policies he put in place, it's actually, you know, it's a problem that had been going on and continues to go on even under um, President Biden. Well, even there was arguments when Trump was office, you know, when people are talking about people being in cages, that those cages existed before Trump. So, I mean, our, uh, I think you said draconian immigration policies have been going on for, you know, for a long well, time. since 9-11, as you point out in your book, and the Department of Homeland Security 
I think as you quite correctly point out in your book, which was formed after uh, 9-11, was a bureaucratic move that had the effect of changing what had been a fairly, um, I don't necessarily want to say liberal immigration policy, but it changed the tenor of how Americans looked at, at migrants coming into the nation. You know, previously, we had looked at ourselves as a melting pot nation and a, and a migrant nation. Suddenly, after the attack on the World Trade Centers, we looked at uh, refugees and migrants with suspicion. And bureaucratically, again, as you, you point out in your book, Joe, um, the way we organized facilities to handle and process them, instead of processing them as fellow uh, world citizens who might want to move to America, we looked at them as a possible threat and criminalized behavior that really had not been there. Um, in the interest of fairness, I should point out that we were not the first country to do that. You know, I, I grew up in the United Kingdom, which has had a very difficult relationship with, with migrants. Uh, Europe has had an extremely difficult uh, relationship since uh, the 1980s. So Yeah, whenever anything you read about, it's just... Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I don't want to give our listeners the impression that, you know, this is a, a uniquely American problem. It isn't, and I think you do make that subtle point in your book oh, about yeah. the Central American governments, which have uh, basically made this a cash well, industry. It's, it's an international... Uh, um, uh, it's almost a conglomerate, you know, this network well, of this people is who what, are making This was what was so um, frustrating and kind of shocking as I started doing that the research. And, and that question... Here's what's different, though, about the United Kingdom or, say, France or certainly Canada. This question of who gets to decide who's an American, that's actually probably the oldest question in this country from the beginning. Yeah. You know, the difference between people who were landowners and people who were enslaved or indentured servants, people who were uh, indigenous and people uh, who came as colonizers, right? My family came from Italy from Bosnia and from Poland and each of those successive waves of immigration in the early part of the 20th century, each of those successive waves were met, not with open arms, right? Uh, but with stern resistance. And there was the laws, you know, starting in the, with uh, like the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s, which prevented people from immigrating from China. There were laws in the 1920s to prevent folks uh, like my uh, great-grandparents who came from southern Italy from coming. And it went on and on and on, really until the um, Immigration Act of 1965, which abolished these uh, kind of quotas for these different uh, quote-unquote racial groups. And that question, you know, to me, it was a question that was settled growing up as a kid on the south side of Chicago, where, you know, I was Italian and Bosnian-Polish, and this kid over here was Filipino, and this kid was Irish. And it was a question that I thought had been settled really until the, you know, resurgence of this question that came up in um, Trump's campaign and starting in 2015 of who gets to be an American and what are the rights and privileges of, of being an American. Um, and, and their, uh, Sadu and Razak, their journey, their story happened to just coincide with this larger question that was unfolding. I think it's a really fascinating footnote. And it's, again, one of those kind of snags in our conversation that five days before September 11th, back in 2001, under um, uh, George W. Bush, George Bush was... Uh, Actually, you know, he had positioned himself as a conservative. Uh, he called himself a caring conservative, right? 
and he had done this huge immigration push. And there was a law that had been um, kind of put together between him and the, and the Senate and the Democrats, Vicente Fox, the president of Mexico, to completely reform and to give up to like 6 million um, undocumented migrants living in the US um, a path to citizenship. So this was under a Republican president just five days before September 11th. And then September 11th occurred and it just completely upended everything. Yeah. So there was this moment where it seemed like we were relatively on the same page about immigration. And then once, as you said, once September 11th happened, the way we thought about people coming from other countries and their intentions and motivations, it just completely shifted. In some ways, we're still very much in that mode of um, suspicion. We're speaking with the author, uh, Joe Mino. He's the got a new book out called Between Everything and Nothing. And we want to take a moment, actually, to hear uh, some words from Joe's new book. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. And we want to thank Jamie Branch from the International Anthem Recording Company. I'd be remiss not to note that Ms. Branch can be heard in concert on July 3rd at Constellation. She has graciously provided the backing tracks for this reading. After more than two hours of wandering in the snow, the men were still lost still some unknowable distance from the border. Razik glanced back and saw Saidu holding his bare hands over his exposed ears, forcing himself to carry on. The temperature continued to drop to minus two degrees Fahrenheit with a wind speed of 25 miles per hour. As the two men marched ahead, they began to feel the punishing effects of negative wind chill, the dire consequences of airspeed and frigid temperatures upon the surface of the human skin. Blood in the skin radiates a thin layer of warmth along the surface of the body so that someone facing 75 degrees Fahrenheit without wind can actually have skin temperature higher than the surrounding air. But if wind carries the heat away, a person experiences heat loss more quickly than their body can produce it. The colder the temperature and more forceful the wind, the greater the heat loss from the surface of the skin. The human brain and its nerve endings quickly perceive this loss, closing down blood cells in the extremities and skin signaling for more blood to flow to internal organs in order to stay alive. This shutting down of cells in the extremities often leads to the ghastly phenomenon of frostbite, the condition in which skin and the tissue below the skin actually freeze. At a wind chill of minus 27 degrees Fahrenheit, these body parts, hands, toes, ears, will freeze in approximately half an hour. The skin itself will not start to freeze until it is below 32 Fahrenheit, as most skin cells contain a number of compounds, including salt, that help lower their freezing point. With the persistence of wind and surrounding sub-zero temperatures, any exposed skin and the tissue beneath it can begin to freeze within 30 minutes, with permanent damage occurring within 90 minutes. Neither Razak nor Saidu had ever heard of frostbite. They had no idea of the mortal danger they were now facing. After more than two hours out in the cold, they had entered a liminal zone, had just passed the point at which their bodies might never recover. Burying his gloved hand in the armpits of his jacket, Razek marched on, feeling a sharp pain in his toes and ankles with every step. It felt as if the skin, the tissue itself, was burning with a dolorous sensation. His body, after moving more than two hours in the frigid air, had begun the initial stages of hypothermia, his core temperature dropping far below the normal levels, his physical coordination and mental functions becoming weaker and weaker, yet he did not know it. At some point, Razak heard a sound far behind him, and Saidu's voice echoing from somewhere in the distance. By then, the younger man had fallen dozens of yards behind. Razak looked back into the darkness, wind whipping at his unprotected face. He adjusted his hood and then squinted. Saidu had stopped moving and was bending over, holding his bare hands over his eyes. Razak slowly trekked backwards through his own boot prints and then began to help wipe the snow from Saidu's face. 
It was unlike anything Razak had ever seen, an image from a horror movie, some terrible dream. Saidu's eyes had become completely frozen, his face crusted over with snow. Without his baseball cap, without a hood, there was nothing to keep the snow and ice from covering Saidu's eyelids. Now that his gloves were also gone, there was ice and snow frozen between Saidu's fingers and he could no longer bend them. Razak murmured to him, huddling close. The border has to be up ahead. If you can't see, call out to me, okay? Just follow my voice. This is how we're going to make it. We can do this together. Saidu nodded and Razak started off, leading the way once more. Moments later, a faint light appeared somewhere up ahead then vanished just as quickly. Did you see it? Did you? Razak called out. The light flashed again. Do you see it? Razak shouted. Saidu was unable to respond. He dug at his eyes, clawing the snow from where it had settled, freezing his eyelids shut. His hands were curled into cruel talons, ice and snow creeping between the fingers to bind them together. The younger man looked up again. A point in the distance began to tremble. He began to move faster now, calling ahead to Razak. I see it! I see it! The wind began to intensify, pushing hard against their bodies. Each step sank them deeper into the snow. Every time they set a boot or shoe down, their foot would become buried and they would have to use their bare fingers to dig their feet out. One by one, step by step, they dragged themselves through the snow, their hands and feet burning from the cold. As they climbed along toward the distant flash of light, a particularly volatile rush of snow and wind blew Razak's glove from his hands, the two objects being lifted high into the sky before vanishing into the dark. Somewhere up ahead, the darkness broke again. A color, the faint flash of light, then it was gone.
Lindsay Clem spoke with Tahira Shirazi, internationally known as the plant artist. Shirazi is a garden designer, fabric artist, and hiker in Pasadena, California. Her work focuses on studying and using native plant communities and earthworks to support wise water use in the increasingly arid West. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs 5 p.m. on Sundays. Tahere. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah. Good morning, Nancy. <laughs> I just wanted to say that um, at the beginning of this call, you had to um, uh, commit to standing still when um, you usually move a lot. And um, <laughs> and it's really, really hot and dry in California. You want to get everything watered in. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the world looks like from uh, where you're standing in your garden? Well, where I'm standing in my garden looks really beautiful right now because there's a slight cloud cover. It's dappled cloud, and but the sun is already feeling strong and it's rising. It's already risen, of course. And I'm just simply trying to deeply water my uh, front back every the yard, uh, so that um, just so that whatever water does land on the soil is nice and deep inside later on at 12 o'clock one o'clock two o'clock in the afternoon the roots can actually drink that up and so i do this usually uh, in the late evening but i'm always afraid that maybe they'll I'll create uh, powdery mildew on everything so then i do it really early in the morning <clears throat> some days when i wake up early in the morning and since i woke up really early this morning uh, for this conversation i made sure that i've been watering and and i have a really hard time standing uh, sitting still and doing something i'm always doing something and i'm always moving around but <laughs> since we're doing this on the phone i have to stay put and not move and just watch this water going back and forth and back and forth <laughs> i have it on an oscillator on kind of a low setting uh, so that it just for the next one hour it's just you know it's doing its thing it's already been doing its thing for a while now um and I know that's kind of strange to say because I know we have water shortages and scarcity and, uh, of course, drought and all of that. But uh, uh, it just makes sense to deeply water less frequently than just keep using water little by little by little every day. Right. Most of which gets lost to evaporation and evapotranspiration. So you've, you know. yeah, you've opened up the huge issue of, again, um, the drought uh in, that southern california is experiencing right now in other parts of the west yeah. and can you talk about the um a little bit more about um what deep watering is and also uh, the conditions that your region is facing both naturally but also um how your region is responding to that with um some restrictions on water use well we have uh, in pasadena it's nicely set up where we can only water certain days of the week certain hours of that day and so on they set that up almost automatically every year now in the last i would say in the last 10 years and we've had a couple of good years of rain a little bit of respite in the last 10 years but it's been seven years of consistent drought and uh, this is what an exceptionally dry year. We have had absolutely no no rain, hardly any rain, five inches of rain, when we should have had about 14. You're talking um, about annually, <laughs> five inches for the uh, year? Yes. yes, for the year. 
Yeah. And uh, so that's like nothing, you know. Um, and so I, I think uh, I, I can't speak to the fact of why this has become so bad. There's so many reasons, you know, just natural reasons as well as climatic change in climate and the way that we use water. So many, so many reasons that are cultural reasons, political reasons. And uh, uh, these are these are these are things. These are this is a cre- something that we have created, but also something that nature does, also cyclically. So, but we uh, have become much more conscious of that because it's happening year after year after year. And I think as a, as communities in the West, we have dealt with drought and also with fires that are happening more frequently and much more earlier in the season. Um, already little fires are sprouting here and there. And so for us as landscape uh, or people who are conscious of designing landscapes or creating these artificial landscapes in any case, fire is really a big question in our minds. Um, and at least it definitely is in my mind because it's just, uh, even though I live in a very dense urban environment, I'm... Um, and usually fire is on the interface of a urban area and a forested area but but it's become so prevalent that you know um fires seem to happen anywhere and so i'm conscious of that and so are many other people are conscious of designing for fire and designing for drought and how do you save water and how do you prevent your house from completely burning down i mean if there's a fire everything burns anyways but just to make it easier for the firefighters to save some things um some homes some lives some animals <clears throat> just make their life a little easier when they're coming to fight fires um but anyhow so so yeah it's it's a lot is going on in the west as far as uh this especially this year where there is so you know it's very intense the heat is very intense it's only it's only june and we are it seems like september already so and can you yeah. tell us qualify that um what is how do I qualify? That? Well, I mean, yes, let us uh, know about the temperatures. It, what temperatures yes, are you experiencing? It's a, correct. It's it's a hundred. It's about almost a hundred degrees right now. Uh, you know, at the peak of the day when it's really really hot, wow. and that's unusual for June. And in, in the month of June here in Southern California, we have something called June gloom. It's always kind of semi cloudy and a little foggy. And it's cool in the evenings. But the the good thing is that it cools down in the evenings quite a bit by like 10 degrees or so, which is a real respite. It kind of reminds me of my own home in Pakistan, in Karachi. It's very muggy and hot and miserable all day long, nine months of the year. Nine months, yeah, pretty much. And then in the evenings, uh, the the Arabian Sea does some wonders and sends some ocean breezes and it just cools down. And uh, Southern California is kind of like that too. It just cools down, except... Thank the Lord, it's not muggy and hot. <laughs> I mean, it's hot, but it's dry heat. Right. Uh, right. And because it's so dry, there is no moisture in the air, then fire becomes a real serious problem. And when is your um, your fire season usually? Usually much later, you know, like September onwards or August. Uh, and every year it seems to creep back some, like two months. And now we are into June and everybody is on tenter hooks, and everybody's kind of prepared and ready that there'll be some fire somewhere. And so, yeah, um, one of the one of the things, and not to digress from that, is is mulching. 
I love talking about mulching. Two things I love talking about is composting and mulching. And both compost and mulch on surfaces really help uh, keep that moisture in the soil uh, and keep that soil somewhat protected mm-hmm. so that it's not bone dry when uh, when fire hits. Well, let's, so, let's yeah. talk, yeah, let's get into some of this because, you know, your, um, the landscapes where you, where you currently live have evolved mm-hmm. with fire, um, as mm-hmm. part of their, uh, you know, they've evolved with fire. So landscapes being, uh, plants and animals have some, uh, natural rhythms with fire. It's just that mm-hmm. the fires are, uh, larger, more intense, um, mm-hmm and um, are starting sooner. You also mm-hmm. have uh, in your you know, natural plant communities and also animals that are used to periods of drought or, or really, um, you know, uh, where water's a scarcity and they've evolved with that as well. But something mm-hmm. something's changing. And so I think coming in as a garden designer, like, like you and many others are in um, creating not just advocating for mulch on the garden, but you're creating larger water harvesting features and um, water saving um, measures uh, from bioswales to um, how you terrace um, land, rain gardens, et cetera. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these forms come from inspiration of what nature does. And where you find yeah. water naturally, and so you have a really strong hiking practice um, or <laughs> yeah. habit, I should say, and you're out a lot observing what you see in landscape and and kind of uh, either intuitively or consciously weaving that into your design. So, can you talk a little bit about the connection between yeah. what you see in landscape and the, and nature doing and how you create? these um, water harvesting or water saving features through your earthworks and practices like Uh, mulch? You know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking of all the hiking that I do, and that does inform pretty much everything else that I'm doing. Um, I want to say that when I first moved here 35 years ago, the first 10 years of my life in Southern California, I lived on the west side of the city of Los Angeles. And um, and I I saw these mountains which are which form the basin which are around the basin of Los Angeles, and they're just dry and miserable looking, and they're not lush, green, and gorgeous, you know, from a distance at least. And I had no interest in them, and uh, my I, I couldn't wait to just go home every summer and spend time with my family because I was here by myself. Um, and then uh, 10 years into this and then we moved to pasadena which is at the foothills of the mountains of a range of mountains called the san it's the san gabriel valley and these mountains are called the san gabriel mountains and once i came here i started hiking these mountains and uh two things happened first of all i saw it saw them up close and began to see so much life and this barren mountain from a distance from the freeways is lush with greenery and life and it's not all just green like it is on the east coast it's actually really dry there's a lot of rock rocks and it's kind of harsh in many places but also very very soft a lot of riparian areas 
it's a mix of many things, many landscapes. Um, and then because I started hiking so almost religiously, um, I started feeling something for this place, for this city, for this country where I live, which became fi- finally became my home. And it only became my home because I began to walk on the land on which I was living. Mm. Uh, till then, I was just a visitor. <laughs> This week on The Biden Files, New York files criminal charges against the Trump Organization, Giuliani is disbarred in New York, the Department of Justice sues Georgia while the Supreme Court upholds a new Arizona voting law, Bill Barr tries to rehab his rep, temperatures soar, and the MyPillow guy is still, somehow, on TV. These are The Biden Files. Day 157, June 25th. The Department of Justice has filed a federal lawsuit against Georgia alleging that the restrictions from its new voting law purposefully discriminate against black Americans. The head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, Kristen Clark, said several of the new law's provisions were passed with a discriminatory purpose that would disproportionately push more black voters to in-person voting, where they'll be more likely than white voters to confront long lines. Georgia's Election Integrity Act was passed by a Republican-led state legislature along a party-line vote and was signed into law by Republican Governor Brian Kemp in late March. Former Attorney General William Barr offered fresh details about Trump's effort to subvert the election to journalist Jonathan Carl of The Atlantic in what was seen as an attempt to rehabilitate his reputation. Barr's main revelations concerns break with Trump on December 1st when he publicly declared the DOJ had not seen election fraud on a scale that would have changed the outcome. Barr told Carl he had already concluded it was highly unlikely that evidence existed that would tip the scales in an election. However, Barr's statement actually indicates that he had ordered a highly controversial change in department policy, one that was designed to insulate the department from getting drawn into disputes over election outcomes, even though he had already concluded there was no basis to the fraud claims. Barr also told Carl that Mitch McConnell had privately urged him to go public all along with the truth about fake election fraud claims. This is because McConnell didn't want to publicly take on Trump, fearing it would imperil Republican chances in the Georgia runoffs. McConnell did this even though he believed Trump's lies were, quote, damaging to the nation. In other words, Mitch McConnell asked William Barr to use the Department of Justice to manage a Republican political problem. McConnell had, in fact, spent weeks refusing to acknowledge Trump's loss while knowing this was hurting the United States. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff pushed back against suggestions from a Republican congressman that the military is becoming too woke. General Mark Milley called the accusations from Representative Michael Walt offensive, saying that studying institutional racism could be useful in understanding what caused thousands of people to assault this building and to try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. Miley added, quote, I've read Mao, I've read Karl Marx, I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. What is wrong with reading and understanding? The Department of Homeland Security is becoming increasingly concerned about the conspiracy theory that Trump will be reinstated as president in August. The department's top counterterrorism official said it was monitoring discussion of the topic among online extremist communities, and the department is now concerned the false narrative could trigger violence. Trump has been privately telling acquaintances he will be reinstated as president by the end of the summer. Day 158, June 26th. President Biden said an infrastructure deal has been struck with a bipartisan group of senators in a deal that would provide about $579 billion in new investments in roads, broadband internet, utilities, and other projects. 
The deal marks a major compromise, but is far from a guarantee that the package will actually be enacted. Both the president and top Democrats say the plan, which constitutes a fraction of the $4 trillion economic proposal Biden has put forth, can only move together with a much larger package of spending and tax increases that Democrats are now planning to push through Congress unilaterally over the opposition of Republicans. If the plan falls apart, Democrats will instead move to pass the legislation unilaterally through reconciliation. In February 2017, weeks after Trump selected him to be Agriculture Secretary, Sunny Purdue's company bought a small grain plant in South Carolina from one of the biggest agricultural corporations in America. That company, Archer Daniels Midland, sold the land to Purdue at a small fraction of its estimated value, just $250,000. EDM had initially asked for $4 million for the property. Six years earlier, they had paid $5.5 million for that same plot of land. The sale was also obscured by complex financial moves that appear to have evaded at least the spirit of an agreement Purdue made with the U.S. Office of Government Ethics. And Derek Chavon was sentenced to 22 years and six months in prison for the murder of George Floyd. Chavon was convicted in April on charges of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Chauvin and three other former police officers present for Floyd's murder are also facing federal civil rights charges. Day 159, June 27th. Rudy Giuliani has been disbarred in the state of New York due to his false statements about the 2020 election. A New York court has ruled that Giuliani made, quote, demonstrably false and misleading statements to courts, lawmakers, and the public at large in his capacity as a lawyer for Trump. The court also said that Giuliani's actions represented an immediate threat to the public. Giuliani is expecting to appeal. His lawyers did not contest that Giuliani made demonstrably false statements, but argued that he was not an immediate threat. In a remarkable win for big tech, a federal judge threw out antitrust lawsuits brought against Facebook by the Federal Trade Commission in more than 40 states. The states had accused Facebook of buying up competitors such as Instagram and WhatsApp to cement their monopoly over social networking. The judge rejected those claims with prejudice and told the FTC it had 30 days to refile a separate complaint. The dismissal is a stinging rebuke for the states and a reminder that breaking the dominance of big tech will not be fast or easy. The news also pushed Facebook stock past $1 trillion in market capitalization, a first for that company. The Manhattan District Attorney is close to announcing criminal charges against the Trump Organization. Trump's lawyers are said to be meeting frantically in New York in a bid to stave off those charges. The investigation centers around fringe benefits the company apparently awarded a top executive, Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg. But it also apparently extends to the company itself. It is unclear if Trump will be personally charged. The district attorney is to allege that Trump manipulated the value of their properties to obtain favorable loans and tax benefits. It also appears that Weisselberg played a greater role than previously known in hush money payments made to two women during the 2016 presidential campaign. Meanwhile, Weisselberg's former daughter-in-law said she is now prepared to testify before the grand jury as part of the investigation into the Trump organization. The Supreme Court rejected a Virginia school board's appeal to reinstate its transgender bathroom ban, which had prohibited transgender students from using the restroom and locker room facilities that reflected their gender identity. The Supreme Court left in place lower court rulings that found that policy unconstitutional. Also, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said that federal laws against the sale and cultivation of marijuana no longer make sense. Thomas made the remarks as the court declined to hear the appeal of a Colorado medical marijuana dispensary that had been denied federal tax breaks. 
A drone attack in a suspected nuclear facility in Iran has caused substantial damage. The attack, believed to be the work of both Israel and the United States, struck a suspected production plant for nuclear centrifuges. The factory near the city of Karaj, 30 miles northwest of Tehran, produces aluminum blades for use in the country's two uranium enrichment facilities. Day 160, June 28th. Saying he misspoke, Biden walked back a threat to veto a bipartisan infrastructure deal if lawmakers don't also pass the rest of his proposals, which include tax increases, climate policy, health care provisions, and investments in child care through budget reconciliation, which would bypass the filibuster. In a statement, Biden said it was, quote, certainly not my intent to create the impression he was threatening to veto, quote, the very plan I had just agreed to. Arizona's Maricopa County announced that it will now replace voting equipment that was turned over to a private contractor for a Republican Commission review of the 2020 presidential election, concerned that that process has compromised the security of the machines. Officials from Maricopa, the state's largest county and home to Phoenix, provided no estimates of the costs involved, but have previously said that the machines cost millions of dollars to acquire. The announcement reflects an added cost to taxpayers for a controversial review that has been embraced by supporters of Trump, who has falsely claimed the election was rigged in Arizona and other battleground states that he lost. And the Justice Department is now investigating Giuliani over yet another foreign lobbying effort, this for Turkish interests. Trump and Giuliani pressured then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to persuade the DOJ to drop money laundering charges against Giuliani's client Reza Zarab, a Turkish-based Iranian-born businessman. Giuliani also urged Trump to extradite a Turkish cleric living in exile in the U.S., who Turkish President Recep Erdogan has accused of inciting a coup. This inquiry is separate from the other criminal probe into Giuliani's activities in Ukraine. Day 161, June 29th. Critical Democratic swing vote Joe Manchin has agreed to support the use of budget reconciliation to pass a broader tax and social spending bill. Manchin said he believes a Democratic-only infrastructure bill now can be done. Manchin's comments came as the Democratic Progressive Caucus told the White House and party leaders they would withhold their support for an infrastructure bill if a bigger, broader tax and social spending package wasn't passed in tandem. The Supreme Court refused to lift a moratorium on evictions that had been imposed by the Centers for Disease Control in response to the coronavirus pandemic. The vote was 5-4, to four, with Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Stephen Breyer joining Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Brett Kavanaugh in the majority. The court gave no reasons for that ruling, which is typical when it acts on emergency applications. As new concerns rise over the highly contagious Delta variant, Los Angeles has taken the extraordinary step of ordering all vaccinated people to mask up indoors. World Health Organization officials also urge fully vaccinated people to continue wearing masks. The CDC responded by saying that concern was misplaced as of yet, but there's little doubt that the new variant is causing grave concern across America and Europe. California lifted virtually all restrictions on business and social gatherings nearly two weeks ago. It is thought the Delta variant is likely to pose much greater risk to people who have not been fully vaccinated. COVID is now the leading cause of death in unvaccinated people. And the House voted to remove statues honoring Confederate and other white supremacist leaders from public display in the Capitol. The legislation would also remove a bust of Chief Justice Roger Taney, who wrote the 1857 Dred Scott decision that said black people weren't entitled to citizenship. Taney's bust will be replaced with one of Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice. Day 162, June 30th. The House has voted to establish a 13-member committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
to vote was 222 to 190, with two Republicans voting in favor. Pelosi will select eight of the 13 members herself, including its chairman. The remaining five will be appointed after consultation with the minority leader. The committee will have the power to subpoena witnesses and documents. Bill Cosby has suddenly been freed by Pennsylvania Supreme Court, with a former actor and comedian's conviction for sexual assault overturned. Cosby's case is a dramatic reversal in the first high-profile sexual assault trial to unfold in the aftermath of the Me Too movement. Cosby had been arrested on charges of drugging and sexually assaulting a woman at his home in the Philly suburbs. The course threw out that case and barred a retrial with the justices harshly questioning prosecutors in their decision. Cosby had already served three years at a maximum security facility. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense for two presidents and who presided over the so-called War on Terror, has died. Widely regarded as the most powerful defense secretary since Bob McNamara during the Vietnam War, he was an elbow-throwing advocate for the disastrous overthrow of the Iraqi government under Saddam Hussein. Rumsfeld, who made pithy claims about known unknowns, saw his career destroyed by what became a forever war in the Middle East. His push to attack Iraq was ultimately revealed to have been sexed up and largely false. He also oversaw the wholesale torture of detainees in one of the darkest moments in American history. He was fired by George W. Bush in 2006 after four years of fighting in Iraq. He was 88. And at a town hall, Trump all but said he was running in 2024 for president. He said Minority Leader Mitch McConnell should also step down and then compared the bipartisan infrastructure framework agreed on by the White House and a group of Senate Republicans to the British policy of appeasement toward Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Day 163, July 1st, the Supreme Court has upheld voting restrictions in Arizona and signaled that challenges to new state laws making it harder to vote will face a hostile reception from a majority of the justices. The vote was 6-3 with the court's three liberal members in dissent. The decision was the court's first consideration of how a crucial part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 applies to voting restrictions that have a disproportionate impact on the members of minority groups and was issued as disputes over voting rights have taken center stage in American states. The decision suggested the Supreme Court will not be inclined to strike down many of those measures. The Trump Organization and its longtime chief financial officer were indicted this morning. Criminal charges were filed against both the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg has surrendered her pleas. The charges, which have not yet been released, apparently relate to tax fraud, cash bonuses, and fringe benefits, and the manipulation of the company's public value to obtain tax and insurance benefits. As of yet, Trump himself is not facing indictment. Speaker Pelosi named Representative Liz Cheney, a harsh critic of Trump, to a newly created special committee to investigate the January 6th riot at the Capitol, taking the unusual step of giving one of her seats to a maverick member of the opposing party. Cheney was ousted from her Republican leadership post for speaking out about the role of Trump and her own party in spreading false information about the election that led to that riot. Dozens of people have died in Canada amid an unprecedented heat wave. Police in the Vancouver area have responded to more than 130 sudden deaths since last Friday. Most of the dead were elderly or had underlying health conditions. Canada broke its temperature record for a third straight day, hitting 121 degrees Fahrenheit in a small town of Lytton in British Columbia. That town has also now been consumed by a large fire that has left all the residents of Lytton homeless. The U.S. Northwest has also seen record highs and a number of fatalities. Nearly all COVID deaths in the United States now are among people who weren't vaccinated. About 63% of eligible Americans 12 and older have received at least one dose. 53% of Americans are fully vaccinated. 
55% of all voters approve of Joe Biden's job as president. These are the Biden files. Chuck Mertz spoke to journalist Brian Justy on the future of an American institution under fire, the post office. Justy discusses his article, The Non-Machinables, an examination of what tech can and cannot do for mail delivery, talks about the ruinous reign of the current postmaster general, and reveals why the post office has been one of the greatest engines for social equality in our nation. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. There was a time when the post office was part of the cabinet, a government agency, but those times are ancient history. And the post office is no more replaced by the privatized United States Postal Service as a business with its focus on the bottom line and balanced budgets. Management at the biggest employer of public sector workers has become increasingly hostile toward postal workers. And with a mandate to constantly automate and integrate new technologies, those tensions have grown. Here to guide us through the history of the post office, its transformation of the postal service, and the troubled relationship between workers and management, Brian Justy wrote the Logic Magazine article, The Non-Machinables, After 150 Years of Technological Innovation. The problems facing the United States Postal Service are only getting harder, which you can find at logicmag.io. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brian. Hi, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. You begin by writing about a new department, the New York City Police or Post Office, uh, established around 1870, called the Bureau of Hards, which you ex- uh, explain took its name from the informal term clerks received or reserved for the most challenging pieces of mail when it came to reading the address. You add, delivering hards no matter the cost is a reflection of the U.S. Post Office's commitment to truly universal service, a radical vision of democratic communications infrastructure enshrined in the Postal Service Act of 1792. How is that a radical vision in 1792? Was it unprecedented? And was there universal support for the post office, which again, you describe as radical? Did the radical notion of the post office cause concern among the powerful? That is a good question. Um, there are a lot of, you know, professional postal historians who um, I think could give much more thorough answers to that question than I can. Uh, I read a lot of their work in writing this piece, and I think one thing that came out um, was that yeah, this was a sort of novel idea at the time. Um, you mentioned this early on, but Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about the postal service in his, uh, you know, very sort of formative and influential book democracy in America. And I think that the attention he pays to the Postal Service does sort of indicate how, um, you know, noteworthy it was. He compares it to existing systems in Europe, which were much more inaccessible to the masses or not accessible at all, much more fractured and uh, usually sort of centered around whatever kind of, uh, you know, royal uh, or, you know, sort of systems of empire existed. Um, and they were not intended whatsoever to be, you know, these sort of uh, vehicles for mass communication. And so with the, you know, uh, westward expansion, let's call it, um, the Postal Service in America became really central to a growing economy, um, a growing populace. And yeah, some of these historians, um, you know, center, whether this is justified or not in full, the center of the Postal Service has sort of like, you know, a linchpin to the founding of the country um, and really, really emphasize the sort of outsized role played by the Postal Service. Um, 
and you know it i guess it can't really be overstated that um you know (laughs) despite it being a radical vision it wasn't actually uh that in practice all the time Uh, it took a while for mail services to be available to everyone to the public um and i think the 19th century is where you get a lot of that playing out um that's sort of where my story starts in the late 19 mid to late 19th century but um you know it was initially you could only send mail from post office to post office there was no direct to uh individual addresses uh you know there was no way to deliver to direct direct addresses people had to line up in long lines outside the post office to check their mail every day um rural delivery cost more so it took a while to sort of make it this thing that we now sort of, I think, maybe take for granted that you can send anything to anywhere. But yeah, that sort of played out over the 18th and 19th centuries. Having to address it to a, a specific person instead of having to send it to a post office, is that what drives the mechanization of the post office? Because you write the first machines arrived in post offices in the 1870s, and it's no coincidence that the first postal worker unions were formed then, too. By the turn of the 20th century, the post office and its government overseers had set into mo- motion an unceasing drive to maximize the role of machines and minimize the role of humans. So was this mechanization, was the attempts at automation, was this all, was this all driven by the fact that there was going to be home delivery? That uh, I think is a good question to ask. And I think that if my article contributes anything to, you know, the sort of postal history discourse, it would be to, you know, sort of center the role of technology in this uh, history, which is often told as a sort of social history. Um, which of course, you know, technology and the question of the social are not uh, unrelated to one another. But I think that, yeah, it's, it's not coincidental that machines and unions show up at the same time. And that's, you know, in, again, in the sort of mid to late uh, 19th century, a, f- a bunch of things, a bunch of factors sort of uh, coalesce around that time. Among other things, that's when they introduce uh, free rural delivery. That's when um, they start to do as you said, home delivery, Um, there is an enormous and very quick expansion of the number of post offices around the country. So all of a sudden, um, you know, this is, I think, where we get get closer to this sense of something like seemingly democratic and accessible. People have access to it. um, And that ultimately means there's this enormous uptick in mail volume. And, you know, unsurprisingly, like hiring the number of workers required to keep up with this is quite expensive. And early on, um, you know, the Postal Service, there's, there's sort of uh, inconsistent data on whether or not the Postal Service was making any money at this point. But I think that what is clear is that the Postal Service, which at the time was called the Post Office Department, it was not yet the Postal Service, but the governmental overseers weren't super concerned with, um, you know, these fiscal concerns because they saw this as this enormous opportunity to sort of, you know, in, as is stated in the uh, 1792 act to quote, bind the nation together. So it was this, you know, cause for investment, not for, you know, um, nitpicking the bottom line to figure out what's what, uh, you know, financially. So machines, I think are an inevitable, um, you know, addition to the post office, but they do start to put new pressures on the workers there. Um, you know, there's new expectations around delivery time. People now know that they can get stuff delivered to their door, uh, which this continues to be a theme um, in, you know, contemporary uh, mail 
delivery. You know, I think about Amazon's same day or one day delivery, sort of putting newfound pressure on what is expected of the postal service. But that sort of trade-off between public and private uh, uh, offerings is a is a very long-running theme. There were little private upstarts in big cities as well competing with the postal service at this time. So I think the machine question is you know predictable and um, raises or sort of points to some interesting kind of uh, you know underlying tensions in this very quickly growing uh, institution, Postal Service. So I think the article, if it achieves anything, hopefully is sort of attempting to point at that and say, hey, we can we can learn a lot about, you know, the relationship between, let's say, public service and innovation by looking at the kind of tumultuous history of technology at the Postal Service, this beloved public institution. And you mentioned these hard-to-read addresses. These hards have never been simply a technical problem in need of a technical solution. Rather, hardness is better understood as an index of the social and political conditions under which mail is delivered. Taken together, these two deciphering operations, the 19th Century Bureau of Hards and the 21st Century Remote Encoding Center, become legible as something like the origin and destination of an arduous and ongoing struggle between postal management and postal workers over the question of technological change. So let's just dwell on that for a little bit. How does hardness, the difficulty to decipher a handwritten address or any address, reflect social and political conditions under which mail is delivered? Well, I would say that um, the question of handwriting is one we can and should talk about, but hardness, so to speak, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with handwriting alone. That's, you know, a, a sort of um, important bit of this story, but um, I think hardness, you know, this, this bureau of hards where they handle the hardest mail, that's where you get these kind of edge cases and outliers and, you know, potentially misaddressed or, you know, destroyed pieces of mail. And it sort of puts pressure on the institution, the Postal Service, to live up to their kind of universalist, universal, um, you know, ethos. Like, that's what the Postal Service, the Post Office Department was founded upon. And uh, it, you know, it basically calls their bluff. If they can't deliver all the mail, then they're not really universal. And so what you do with those outliers, I think, kind of is where you can kind of see whether or not there's some friction between the kind of mission statement and the actual operations. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. CyberClamp also offers a number of packages. Um, do you think we could talk about those for a moment? Um, for sure. I do I do want to say up front that um, to get a quote from us, um, all individuals looking to get a quote, even if it's even if it's, a, even if it's one of our free quotes, they must sign a non-disclosure agreement um, to protect our existing clientele, to protect right. the company itself. Right. So there isn't a lot of details that I can say um, about our packages. Um but we do offer, you know, for, uh, coverage for friends and family. You know, if we identify an, an individual in your um, uh, digital home, your digital space, um, digital sphere that is putting you at risk, um, we not only notify you, but we nip that risk at the bud. Really, that that's quite fascinating. So it's not when 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 you when you have this particular package as part of the mm-hmm. CyberClamp Identity Protection Suite. You are not just monitoring the individual in question, but the individuals that that individual comes into contact with right. in the we, internet we realm. We do screen um, any individual they come into contact with um, because uh, that is 
um, how many, you know, viruses, how many um, hacks, how many exploits are made is through contact with individuals who have not sufficiently protected themselves. Okay, and 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 so, um, and no, I I'm, I'm understanding this. I'm imagining it in the sense that um, that you know, um, you I can't speak for you, but I know that I have gained a number of internet friends and acquaintances mm. over the course of the pandemic. Um, and with those individuals who I interact with, you never know when someone could be, um, if not necessarily a criminal themselves, but 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 an opportunity to mm-hmm. uh, become a victim. And what you're saying is, is that CyberClamp would actually see those mm-hmm. those issues and then resolve them. No, absolutely. I mean, how many times have you received, you know, a nonsensical message, um, a, a followed up with a link from, you know, an older family member who is technologically literate? Right. And you trusting that family member in whatever um, they're sending you open that link and maybe it's a virus. Right, right. Because you don't want to disappoint Peepaw. Exactly. You, exactly. You, you want to give people. You want um, to believe that people is is not compromised, right. and, and unfortunately, it, it happens to the elderly. It does happen to the elderly, and that's sort of where it starts. And you, you get a message from this potentially elderly family member, this technologically illiterate family member who is, has been compromised, and then could we say um, in, could we say oftentimes elderly? Oftentimes elderly. Okay. Um, sure. Eureka Cast Now broadcasting Saturdays eight to nine p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.